But you know me by a different, much older name. A name perhaps you hoped you'd never hear again. I am Dave! How did that sound? It sounded like the penguin there. Whatever that. A little was. bit. A little bit. Not yeah. too bad. Hey, everybody. I'm Dave. I think the penguin is Rico. I don't know. I, d- I actually only saw uh, the first Madagascar movie. I didn't see the two or three or the penguin one or anything like that. The penguins beat Madagascar. Yeah. By a long shot. I, I believe really? it. I, I think so. The penguins one. I liked Madagascar. I thought it was all right. I didn't like the giraffe was an annoying character. He was just super whiny and mopey. Did not did not like him. That would be David Schwimmer. Lemur. Yeah, Mr. David Schwimmer from the show Friends, who we actually have as a guest. No, we don't. We don't. <laughs> and and probably never will. Not that we would be against that if David Schwimmer's listening. We'd love to have you on, but because uh, <laughs> he's listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, you never know. You know, this is uh, going out there, and you never know which ears it may reach. Well, anyway, I am. I love your optimism. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, it's one of my benefits. One of my uh, one of my my core value things, or you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Whatever you call it. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, ha- I have eloquence. something here. <laughs> oh, you have something. I, I do. If I can get it right away. Well, well you get it. You you get that right away. We're waiting. I like to move it, move it. Yes, like this is my favorite yes. part. You, you like, like this to, part? I do. Move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. So should I like remix the intro and use this instead of the penguins? I think it would be great to remix the intro sometimes just to have some variety. Mm-hmm. But uh, okay, so I have an idea to remix idea. the intro with. Do you? I do. What's this okay. guy's name? This guy, King him? something. It's a uh, King Julian. Julian. That's Julian. Great. Oh, I like him. He's my favorite. He's good. Okay, so this is an open letter. In case you're wondering, this is the podcast, an open letter. I'm Dave, and across from me is the our producer, Chad. That would be me. Yes. And then to my right and Chad's left is my lovely fiance, Carol. That's me. As we start off every episode, we usually kind of just banter, talk a little bit. Um, but I always start with an off-the-cuff question. Carol, this question is going to be familiar to you because we've been kind of talking about it for the last couple of weeks. This is actually a Carol question. <laughs> this is a good thing for I you guys to think coming. of. You do know what's coming. Okay, so Chad, I want you to think about this. And uh, Carol, we'll have you go first. So if you could time travel and witness one part of Jesus's ministry, whether it be a miracle or some type of interaction with a person or a group of people, and you could just witness that one thing, what would you choose hmm. to go back and watch? You can't participate. You can only really observe. And listen. Yeah, and listen. No, you won't be able to listen. You're going to take away your hearing. No, that'd be weird. Uh, well, observing usually means yes, visual. Yes, I know. Thank so. you, Miss Literal. Okay, so what would your answer be, Miss Carol? Mine would be when the religious leaders brought to Jesus the woman who had been caught in adultery, and he leaned down and wrote in the sand and then said, but him who is among you that, that is without sin cast the first stone. And they yes. all walked away. Do you wonder what was written in the sand? I do. That's one of the things I want to check out. <laughs> See, I heard a biblical scholar say that he thinks he wrote down the name of the Pharisees that were with the adulterous one. Yeah, I've heard that. It makes sense, right? He was writing them all big. Another question I have about that story, just as a, I love the details of stories, is how long did it take him to write whatever he was writing? Yeah. Because it, I don't. It How kind long did of, it take them all to walk away? Yeah, because it kind of alludes to the fact that they're they're either walking away while he's writing, or he wrote what he wrote, and then they all walked away. It's not real clear, if I recall. So, what is it about that story specifically that touches you, Carol? Well, it really touches me how he handled it, just with grace, without being argumentative. He made it very clear to the people that were accusing her. He was on her side in a, in a sense, like he was defending her. He was he was well, helping her out. Well, he saved her life. There's no he doubt he saved about her that. life, but he he didn't let them bully her. Yeah, 
but he didn't do it in an antagonistic way. They realized their own flaws. I like that they walked away from the oldest to the youngest. The oldest one was the first one to take off because he had lived life long enough, was wise enough to realize I'm not innocent here. And, and then the fact that he just reached out to her and said, go and sin no more. You know, don't, don't do that anymore. But he didn't criticize her. He didn't condemn her. And I like to think that that was a life-changing exchange for her. Absolutely. Mine is Lazarus being raised from the dead. Um, a couple different reasons why. I mean, because it would just be totally cool to see someone be raised from the dead. Um, I would love to see the people's reactions when Lazarus came out of the tomb because when Jesus was saying, Lazarus, come forth, would have loved to have heard the tone of his voice and the power of that command where uh, even a dead man couldn't resist what he was saying. It would be really interesting to see Lazarus kind of the shock on his face as he realizes he's, he's alive again. And just when Jesus is even giving the command, the look on everyone's face is like as a disciple's like, what is he doing? Can he really do this? And then Mary and Martha's response to have something back, someone back that they had lost, someone they obviously loved very much, and just the, the response they have of, you know, disbelief turning into joy. I think that would have been really cool. Now it's your turn. The resurrection. <laughs> Jesus walking out of the tomb. That would shut everybody up for good. Boom. Maybe. End of discussion. <laughs> and if you had your camera, if you had your iPhone, <laughs> you could record that. You could you could have Facebook lived it. Facebook live. That was okay. Everybody, shut up. Here it is. Here it is. Boom. And it was that. That's Photoshop. That's that's rigged. But if you couldn't share it with anyone, if it was just you watching, if it was just you there, would you still pick the same thing? Yep. That's a great one. Because it shuts up my own doubt for good. Yeah. There's, I would never doubt it. There's some interesting thoughts on that. I'm reading a book right now by Philip Yancey called Disappointment with God. And it's interesting because he says of all the things that the old God in the Old Testament did lots of these very powerful miracles and showed up in very, very strong ways. And those things never seem to inspire extended belief. And I thought that's an interesting point that he made. But anyway, that's not what this podcast is about today. That's just our off-the-cuff question. Today, if you, I don't know, if you have kids that listen to this podcast sometimes, I don't know that you're going to want them to listen to this one, especially if they are younger, under the ages of 14, 15 years old or so. It'll be a PG-13 rated podcast. It's a podcast I've honestly been wanting to do for a little while, but I wanted to get a few under our belt because it's kind of a controversial podcast. Surprise, surprise for us, right? But it's my story. I really haven't talked a lot about kind of some of the mistakes I've made, some of the things that I've been through. And so Carol has graciously agreed to interview me today. And actually, Chad and Carol will be kind of tag teaming on that. But Carol has put together the questions I'd like to say something about this that would demonstrate to the people listening how big of a deal this actually is because I don't I'm not I'm not sure if we're really emphasizing that very much. I don't think you did very well in the introduction, not that that's insulting. <laughs> no, like but, uh, yeah, what do you mean? Explain. Well, today is December 3rd, 2016. Yeah. On December 30th, 2016, these two, being Dave and Carol, are going to be married. So yeah. odds are yeah. a lot of you who are listening to this, this is, you know, they will probably already be married by then. So yeah. Yeah, it's true. Oh, so my. that's what makes us interesting because you'll be talking about a struggle of yours that you've had for quite some time and your fiance is conducting the interview. And when people realize what this is about, you're going to see how profound the very knowledge that they're about to get married has on this interview. And you might not even know this, Chad, but not only did this contribute to the end of David's first marriage, it was also a significant factor in the end of my first marriage. Really? Yes. Yeah. Like major. Which, which would make it more troublesome for you to yes. walk into it. This is why I haven't exactly been looking forward to doing this podcast no and understandable and that's and she carol and i certainly have talked about do you want to conduct the interview and she knows the story there's not going to be information today that's going to be new to her 
Uh, we've had full disclosure years ago, actually. Yep, um, from the get-go. Yeah, from the very, very beginning, actually, from the first couple of weeks we even knew each other, a lot of this stuff was, was out and, and explained and, and told and confessed, if you will. So, um, no, but thank you for adding that, Chad. Um, yeah, it's tough to intro your own story. We don't do this just to be titillating. We don't do this just to try to be controversial. Pornography is an issue that, I mean, just look at statistics. There, There's a great website. It's called Fight the New Drug. And if you want to Google that, they're doing some great work in, in, in battling against yeah. um, pornographic addiction. Um, and I am on their uh, their mailing list. And I've, I've, co- I've corresponded with them even a little bit uh, lightly myself. So, yeah, this is, this is a tough subject. We know that tons and tons of men uh, and women, uh, more and more so actually, mm-hmm. are becoming, uh, this is becoming a huge problem in their lives and it's causing a lot of damage. So Carol, this, I, I hand it over to you. Okay. The first question I asked you when we talked about doing this was why do you think it's important to share this story? Well, to touch on that, I, I touched on it a little bit, but you know, part of my life is I feel like I'm called to be extremely open and vulnerable and through the last um, 20 years or so, I have made a practice to be honest, not just about what I have struggled with, but I've tried to be very honest about things that I currently struggle with. And I think that in the church, sometimes we do an okay job. We have testimony nights and we have people come up and say, I used to struggle with this, but praise God, you know, and that's great. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that mockingly, but praise God, it's it's gone and I don't deal with it anymore. Um it's very rare I've had heard anyone from a pulpit say, here are the things I currently struggle with, unless they're extremely minor things. Like a guy I heard once, his his problem was he stole salsa, um, <laughs> little packets of salsa from Moe's Barbecue, and that was his big, his big confession, which was in a way extremely offensive to me years ago when I heard that sermon, and I was struggling with my marriage having broken up because I had an addiction to pornography, and his big sin was he stole salsa. If I can also say something on that note about the yeah, being yeah. open. Yeah, sure. Because I actually had a conversation with somebody earlier this week, and her problem with Christians were the image of everything is perfect. Yeah, exactly. And that so many Christians don't mention their struggles, and they don't mention the skeletons in their closet. And then as I pointed out to her, I'm like, well, you know, when people do that, in my opinion— it's not healthy because then when something does come out, it's a scandal. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, we were just talking on the car on the way over here about how growth and change doesn't occur unless you go through something uncomfortable or painful. Not just in life, but in, I mean, in the big picture, but when you think about exercise and learning in the classroom, there's always a level of frustration and discomfort and pain that brings about the learning and the same is true spiritually and yes we are sanctified yes we are made perfect in christ but it's the ongoing struggles that make us more like him in practicality and if we're not open about those things and we don't face them we're going to stagnate one of the things i've learned and, and carol's heard me say this multiple times is vulnerability breeds vulnerability and when you're open and honest with somebody it encourages other people to be open and honest. And we have to be open and honest because another great little saying is this is from Alcoholics Anonymous is you're only as sick as your secrets. And too many Christians, like you're saying, Chad, uh, this this girl said it, and it is frustrating because you ask people how they're doing, and they're like, well, I'm doing fine. And then, you know, it's not always appropriate to spill your whole story like I'm about to do um, <laughs> <laughs> to to everyone who might possibly be listening. But I do it very, very intentionally because I found it to be extremely healthy to go, hey, you have the thing that you're struggling with. Let's be honest. That's where you are. And you cannot heal something you refuse to acknowledge you're even wounded in. And so when you say skeletons in the closet, even that is agreed it's a little bit of a misnomer because skeletons refers to something that's gone and old and past i think we have zombies in our closet right they're like still alive and they're still, still t- scratching at the door we're still there's yeah and, and sometimes they get out yeah and we got to talk about this stuff and we got to stop pretending everything's okay and everything's rosy and, and we don't ever have hardships because that's that's baloney and i think too that now this is an even more important issue to deal with because our kids are facing so much more availability 
than what we did. And we're going to go back and talk about how this started for David back when it was a question of magazines in the corner store. But now it's just a simple Google search on a smartphone that can affect somebody's life. Yeah, that you carry in your pocket. (laughs) So how did this happen? How old were you the first time you saw pornography and how did that happen? I was probably... 13, 12, 13, I had some, some, my best friends lived across the street from me and their dad, uh, you know, it's a classic story. It's almost cliche. He had playboys, uh, sometimes and the, and of course his sons would get into them without him knowing, you know, parents sometimes think they hide things and kids are very, uh, intuitive on where to find where things like that are hidden, especially when you're talking about prepubescent boys and, or, and, uh, they're starting to have hormones flowing around and, they would tell me how wonderful, how awesome it was to see women naked. <laughs> and, of course, you hit 11, 12 years old, and you're starting to, and depending on what age you are, it varies a little bit. But And there's something that, that sounds really weird, but it sounds really cool. We had a house that was being built next door to ours um, in Jenison, Michigan. One of the construction guys left behind a pornographic magazine, and it was very hardcore and boy, I loved it. I thought it was great. It made me feel ways I'd never felt before. I didn't even know you could feel that way. It was it was crazy. So is that when you started seeking it out or was it a while later? Well, when you're 13 years old in 1980 in West Michigan, <laughs> um, your options are very far and few between. I knew I loved what I saw. I knew I was I was very on board with seeing more of it. You know, if I would have had access to more, I would have certainly have consumed that, if you will. Through the years, I would find, uh, a friend would find something and they'd share it. Or uh, I'll never forget my friend Matt one time uh, found a pornographic video, uh, the reel-to-reel actually, and he was having all these guys from high school come over after school. And we would all, I mean, I don't know how many guys he had over would come and watch this this pornographic video. I, I remember and we watched it together. Oh, all these guys. Yeah. Which is super awkward. That's weird. Um, it was <laughs> weird. But when you were watching this at, this was probably like 15, 16, you're not even aware anyone else is in the room at that point because you, you've never seen anything like this. I hadn't, I'd seen pictures, but the video was a whole nother level. Only level. Oh, it was. And I can still remember images from that video. I can still what remember images from that magazine. And that's not uncommon. You were raised in a Christian home, right? Yeah, very, very, very Christian, I did, would say. How did you feel about all this? Did you feel guilt? Oh, yeah, tons, tons of guilt and shame. I knew this was verboten, if you will. I didn't know who to talk to because my parents, similar to lots of parents of their generation, baby boomers, didn't really talk to us about sex at all. Sex was not something. You saw it on TV and stuff and hinted at in the James Bond movies maybe, but we didn't talk about it. And so I hid it, and I had to hide it. You don't talk about it. I thought it was just kind of weird. So how did you deal with the guilt? I've had conversations with other men that have had this struggle, and they described a cycle of prayer and confession and resolutions and then falling and guilt. And did you find yourself in that cycle as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. A classic cycle of addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I wouldn't say when I was a teenager I was addicted, uh, very, very curious, but yeah, I would, I would find some porn somehow, or I don't know, and I would take it home and I would hide it in one of my puzzle boxes up in my, uh, my closet in my room, which I know my mom would never go in there in a million years. I got to be very good at hiding things. Mm-hmm. I got very good at lying. So I would have this, I'd have it for a few days, maybe a week at the most. We were very, of course, going to church on Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, I'd get convicted by God. I'd throw it all away when I got home, um, you know, in a way that no one would could find it. I grew up Pentecostal, so I went to altar calls and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and got saved multiple times <laughs> and said the sinner's prayer mm-hmm. a whole bunch of times. And all the things I thought you were supposed to do, I, I tried to do to get rid of this. Mm. And nothing was successful. No, nothing was, nothing seemed to be successful at all. Um, it just seemed to just continually get worse and worse and worse as I got older. Well, stats show that an early exposure to porn like that leads to an earlier onset of sexual activity, greater acceptance of premarital sex. Do you think it affected you that way? Oh, yeah, hugely. Um, I had a girlfriend. I was just 
dying to try out the things I was seeing mm-hmm. in the magazines. I'm like, yeah, this looks great. I definitely want to do this stuff. And then when I got a girlfriend um, who was willing to let me do those things, took a few months to get to the point, you know, because it's a progression. Sure. And so within a few months, we were trying the things that I saw, and she was willing to let me try. And I think I was uh, 16, 17 at this time. Wow. Yeah, and she was um, about a year younger than I was. Mm-hmm. How old were you when you met your first wife? I think I was about the same age. I was actually going out with a different girl. <laughs> I was going out with this, yeah, I think I was in a relationship with that girl. When I when I met her, probably in 1984, I was still in high school when I met her. Okay. Yeah, and she was probably just starting high school, like a freshman or a sophomore, I think. How long before you were in a serious relationship were you talking about marriage? We dated. We got married when I was 21. She was 19. I think I met her when I was like, 15 or 16 we'd known each other three or four years uh, we known, knew each other for at least a couple years before we started dating she'd had a couple boyfriends at the church and i'd had a couple girlfriends on and off and then she was single i was single and i asked her out one day and she said yes and i'm like oh okay cool let's go out and it was probably a good year in before because we were really young i mean mm-hmm. probably i was 20 she was uh 18 when we started really talking about marriage and she was aware of your interest in pornography. Yeah, I told her on our second date. We went out on our first date, went really well, you know, enough obviously to have a second one. On the second date afterwards, I said, hey, here's this deal that I that I struggle with, and I'm not okay with this. I don't like this. I'm trying to fight this. And at that time, I had expanded. I, had, uh, I was in a small group with a friend, um, my friend Phil and my friend Jim, and, uh, and I had told them about it. But I didn't know who else to tell. How did she feel about it? What was her attitude? Concerned. She certainly didn't understand, nor did I, the power that this had over my life and the power that it would continue to have over my life. Did either of you have any idea of the other effects of porn besides just the whole guilt issue? No, not at, I mean, at that time, this is mid-80s now, very few people were talking about porn was always this dark little secret like uh you know in the the, like in the 40s 50s 60s 70s i mean you just if you were an adult you could get access to it but you had to go to these really seedy bad parts Mm -hmm. of town um it was very difficult it wasn't real easy to come by uh you could buy it at party stores right and but even then you're super embarrassed in a super religious community not like like today where you can just click it yeah yeah the access 24-7. One of the problems that's been noticed, there's a direct correlation between the amount of pornography one watches and one's overall sexual satisfaction. Hmm. So that people that watch porn report less satisfaction with their intimate partner. Did you feel like that had a negative effect in your marriage? At the time, I would have said no. But now that I go, I look back on it, um, absolutely um, and, you know, and I'm trying to be careful because I don't want, um, I appreciate your being careful with this too, because I don't want this to be about her. Right. And, you know, and well, that's another thing we're going to discuss. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I don't see, I don't know where this is going. She does. At the beginning of our marriage, I wasn't very interested in sex, um, which sounds crazy because I thought I had this very much had this thought process of once I get married and I can have sex, I won't need porn anymore. It'll mm-hmm. go away. And that was true for probably the first three, four months. But but you were already sexually active. So what difference did that make? Um, because there was the whole forbidden fruit of it. There was the whole excitement of we're not supposed to be doing this. We're sneaking around before we're married, you know, trying to find places, you know, and opportunities uh, to have sex, which wasn't real easy. But when I got married and now it was okay. <laughs> the I, excitement I, was gone. Part of it. I mean, it was still something that. I was interested in and enjoyed, but I quickly learned and realized that the porn that I would consume, that I would, I wanted to do that by myself um, and not mm-hmm. with someone else because it was feeding a different desire and it was stealing from the desire that I should have been given to my wife. Absolutely. 
And so she actually got very frustrated early in our marriage, wondering why I wasn't that interested in sex with her. Mm-hmm. And it was because it just felt weird that this was okay and not something that was hidden secret or dirty anymore. Right. Not to go into my story too much, but I also, this was an issue for my ex-husband. Yeah. And I often felt responsible, like it was my fault for not being enough. Yeah. And I, I'm sure that your ex-wife had the same experience. Oh, absolutely. And we would talk about that. And I, I feel like I am a little bit of an, I am an intuitive person to some extent, an introspective and I, I could tell her early on, this is not because you're not enough. There's something broken in me. There's something wrong. My addiction had nothing to do with her not being interested in sex. Because that's what I heard Like as I got older and started getting counseling. And people wanted to be saying things like, well, your, your wife's probably not doing enough. And I like that was not it at all. That was not no. part of the deal. Well, I understand that now, too. But I also know that... <laughs> Your love language is not words of affirmation. <laughs> so <laughs> so that combined with looking at other things could lead a woman to feel like, wow, he just doesn't yeah. think much of me. Yeah, and I'm sure, I, I know, that, of course she struggled with that even though I, I think she came to believe in some way intellectually that that was true, but emotionally, I mean, right. it still had to have a hit, I would think. Tell me about the first time you lost a job because you were looking at porn. How far into your marriage would, did that happen? Um, it was quite a ways into the marriage. We got married in 1988, and in the year 2001, um, I had been working in a warehouse for almost our entire where, our marriage. I had dropped out of college to get married, have kids, decided to go that route. Through the years of working at this warehouse, it was a good job that treated me well. But I felt very discontent because I knew I could do more. Mm-hmm. And I was just doing very menial labor. And it, it paid pretty well. And the people were there nice and I have good, had good friends there. And there was no opportunity to look at porn on that job. So I didn't. wasn't mm-hmm. ever an issue. But I knew I felt this call on my life. And so I went to Bible college through the mail, uh, Berean Bible School or Global University. Chad's, Chad knows of this. <laughs> I do. He's done it. Um, so I got certified to preach, put my resume out there, had been working in children's ministry for many years at my home church. Um, and of course, real, real important distinction. I do this. My pornography addiction never had anything to do with kids. I mean, I'm not proud of what I looked at. That just, that was not my bent at all. I'm working with kids and it's going really well. I'm getting a chance to preach. Um, and lead Sunday morning services uh, for the kids' ministry. And it was, you know, we're talking 100 kids. Great, great children's pastor, Tim Ryder, Ken Gothman, at First Assembly of God in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Great guys, really helped. They knew of my problem or my addiction or my, my sin with pornography. They kept giving me more and more opportunities to the point where, okay, now I go to Bible college through the mail, put my resume out there. I get hired at First Assembly of God in Des Moines, Iowa. As a children's pastor, not quite a mega church, but a big church in Des Moines, Iowa. I was one of 13 pastors on staff. And I told them, too, I said, hey, I, I, I have this issue with pornography. I'm really, I feel like I've overcome it. I've been fighting it. I've been honest with people about it. And I was in a pretty good place when we moved out there. And uh, I met with uh, the guy who wrote Every Man's Battle, uh, Fred Stoker, who was a, a member there. He and I became friends. And Fred gave me a stamp, said, yeah, I think this guy's going to be okay. Um, I was there, so I got hired, moved the family to Des Moines, Iowa. And about six months in to the job, I looked at porn in the, for the first time in my office. And then a couple months later, I, I, oh, man, oh, that's not good. I, I told my wife, and I confessed it. And then a couple, about a month or two later. What did she say? At this point in our marriage, we had I had had so many, uh, that cycle of addiction. I had confessed mm-hmm. so right. many times. I would be looking at, I was a driver for a while in this warehouse job where I would deliver to convenience stores. Well, guess what convenience stores have more often than not? Mm-hmm. Porn magazines. Um, and so sometimes they'd have them in their bathrooms, um, and I got to know which ones had them. And I got to know where they hid them in their bathrooms because I figured out, because I knew where to hide things, so I figured out where they hid them. <laughs> and uh, so I'd know which ones had them. And so I'd be struggling, wouldn't do well. Sometimes I'd buy one. And uh, 
my ex-wife would be asking me, hey, how are you doing? And I would lie to her and I'd say I'm doing fine. And she would know I wasn't. She knew she knew I wasn't doing well, but she couldn't get me to tell the truth. Um, and I remember being very nervous. And, uh, and I could also visit adult bookstores when I was driving around with a truck. Now, this is before your job as a pastor or yeah, during? Yeah, this is before. Okay. This is, the where, this is the warehouse. This is when I'm okay. driving around working for the warehouse. We went through a whole bunch of counseling in the early 90s. Um, so I finally get to the pastor job in 2001. Mm-hmm. I think I've got the stuff pretty much in my rearview mirror. But I'm put in an office by myself with no filter on the Internet, which it's not, the, it's not really their fault, I, but I chose to start looking at it. 2002, early 2002, I started looking at porn in my office a lot. Mm-hmm. And it just got worse and worse and worse. So for those of you that are listening and feeling judgmental about looking at porn at work, I did a little research. 70% of internet porn traffic occurs between 9 and 5. Wow. 70% when most people are at work. Wow. This happens a lot. Yeah. And, well, what about pastors? Oh, surely pastors never look at porn at work. I was probably uh, the only one. Well. I say that sarcastically. Yeah, I know. I found this quote by Bill Perkins that I really liked. If you think you can't fall into sexual sin, then you're godlier than David, stronger than Samson, and wiser than Solomon. And he didn't mean this David here in front of no, the microphone. No. In August of 2000, Christianity Today conducted a survey of the readers. 11% of the calls received on Focus on the Family's Pastoral Caroline were about pastors and online porn. A year later... Online porn worries prompted 20% of the calls. The numbers just keep going up. Yeah, these are the guys that are being honest. Yeah. Among the clergy who use internet porn, 30% do not talk to anyone about their behavior. Well, you can't. No. Well, 75% of pastors say they don't make themselves accountable to anyone for their internet use. So 75% of the pastors don't have anyone that they talk to about what they're doing on the internet. And 51% of them said that porn was a temptation, uh, uh, internet porn. And again, those are the ones that are being honest. Right. So the numbers are bigger. So the numbers get go up. In 2002, of all the pastors surveyed, 54% said they'd viewed internet pornography within the last year and 30% within the last 30 days. And this is from and what this year? this is 2002. Yeah, this is 14 years ago. Yeah. Wow. And so you know this is a big problem. Why is this such a struggle for pastors, do you think? Because they're isolated. So there's a number of different things going on there. There's the title of pastor that would that carries with an extreme expectation. I want to back up just a second here because those numbers, I'm sure, are much bigger now and much yeah. greater. Um, but I'm in no way, shape, or form are we saying that it's okay and that justifies the usage. It does not at all because this is extremely destructive. Right. I have, we have a friend, a, a mutual friend of mine that's like, of ours, that's like, what's the big deal? So what? You looked at a little porn. What's mm-hmm. the big deal? It's a huge deal. This is extremely, dis- potentially destructive stuff. Yeah. So yeah, I think that you get isolated as a pastor. Who are you going to tell? Because I told in September of 2002, I got fired. I lost my job. And I would say rightfully so because I had been hiding it. I had been lying to people. I had been covering it up for months. So the response was to fire you, but did they offer you some help? They did. Okay. They did. And I would say that they, they tried very hard to do the best job they could. Um, the, my senior pastor there... Um, he and I did not have a close relationship, but he's a very kind, very, very generous man. Um, they had me an accountability partner. The Assemblies of God had a year-long accountability restoration program that they plugged me right into. Um, and it wasn't perfect, but it was helpful. And at least they had they were trying yeah. to deal with this because it was happening more and more across the nation. They sent me away to a, a week-long uh, counseling, my ex-wife and I. They sent us to Akron, Ohio, to uh, this this ministry where they paid for the whole thing. Wow. So they were extremely generous and really walked with us and loved us through it. And, and you stayed at that church, We right? stayed at that church. Wow. So what was your wife's response to your job loss, and what did you do for work? Like, how, how did that look, that whole process? Well, 
the process, I, I, I was getting, I was under more and more guilt and I was spending more and more time on the internet in my office, you know, the door locked and uh, I could just shut the door and I had a secretary next door and I was losing hours a week and I was only telling my good friend, Mike, uh, and, and, and one of my other leaders, Mark, they would ask me and they knew I was struggling. And one day Mike came into my office in September in 2002 and he was in the middle of a literal 40 day fast. And mm-hmm. you, and you know, Mike, of course, yeah. um, great guy and very, but very, um, hardcore. He mm-hmm. goes after things. He's intense. He's very intense. I love this guy. Um, and, uh, he, he sat down and we were going to go over, uh, a youth, we're going to have a back-to-school rally. It was September. Mm-hmm. So we go through our meeting. He's talking to me, and he says, I have a word from God for you. I'm supposed to tell you something. And I'm like, oh, crap, because I know it's not going to be good. Because <laughs> he had been hammering me, you got to tell your wife. you got to tell your wife you're doing this. And I'm like, no way. Just me and God and, and you guys are going to figure this out, and I'll put it in my rearview mirror, and then I'll be clean for a couple of years, and then I'll tell her. <laughs> um, that doesn't work, no. uh, by the way. Sin thrives in secrecy. So Mike says to me, if you don't confess, if you don't humble yourself, God will humble you. He'll do it for you. And if you don't stop doing this, it will destroy you. I will never forget those words. That was a Friday. Yeah, it was a Friday afternoon, late in the day. I went home Friday night, and I walked in the door, and my wife looks at me, and she said, my life's over, isn't it? I'll never forget those words. And we... Struggled through the weekend, ran kids' church Sunday morning somehow, and uh, Monday I went and told my boss, who was the family life pastor, friend of mine, and a good guy, Randy, and he said, okay, tomorrow morning we need to talk to the senior pastor, John Palmer. Tuesday morning we went and told Pastor Palmer, and he said, okay. He looked very, very hurt, very disappointed. Uh, he said, why don't you just take the rest of the day off? We will be in contact Wednesday morning. The following day, they came over with Pastor Palmer and Randy and my good friend Jim. And uh, they said, we've tried to avoid this happening. We've tried to figure out any way we could keep you on staff. We talked to some experts in this area. And because it happened in, and it really only happened at church. It didn't happen at home. And they said, you're going to have to resign. You can either read a letter or you can write a letter and we'll read it in front of the church, or you can go and talk to the church and tell them what you did. And I chose to, to talk to the church because I thought that was what I was supposed to do. My mom and dad started to come out, and uh, I, I just that wasn't going to be a good dynamic. I knew they were coming out because they loved me. I didn't need the comfort that my parents would want to provide. Right. They got halfway out to Des Moines, and God told them to go home. Wow. They got to about Chicago area, and God told my mom specifically, you need to go home. Mm-hmm. And they turned around and went home about three and a half hours into the trip. And you know my mom and how much she loves yeah. me. That's huge. Mm-hmm. So that uh, that Sunday, I got up in front of the church, and uh, I was waiting in my office, uh, waiting because I didn't want to be in the service, of course. And Pastor Palmer preached a message about forgiveness sitting in my office with my uh, my wife and my uh, some friends and her parents were out there and uh, Randy came to get me and my office knocks on the door it's time Dave uh, and he leads me down the hallway into the narthex and he brings me all the way to this side door all the way this far far end of the sanctuary and there's some cue that he knows when we're supposed to go in to the church service so I can confess my sins and uh as I'm standing there, and it's very, very surreal. And in the walk to the door to wait to go in, the thought crossed my mind is like, this must be what it feels like to go to your execution, to be executed, to be hanged, or be put in front of a firing squad. I'm standing there next to Randy, and we're standing there waiting for the queue, and I'm looking around, and I look next to the door. And this is one of the most tangible ways God has ever reached out to me. In black crayon, next to the door I was about to walk through to go into the sanctuary and tell these seven, 800 people that I had been looking at pornography in, in, the, in my office as a pastor. Right before I walk in, I noticed something small scribbled on the wall next to this door. And in black crayon, it said, I love you. This sense of 
God's presence was showed up so strong and I was still terrified and, you know, and, and it was horrible, but all of a sudden God was just like there, just like, buddy, I'm here. You're doing, you're doing something good. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and people have said to me, you know, you're crazy because you went and talked to the church and you stood up in front of them. That was, you know, why would you do that? But it was what I was supposed to do at the time. Yeah. And God confirmed that. I've heard that story so many times, but it's still... It's crazy. Me. I went and I told the church. I said, I've, I've been looking at pornography on the internet and I, I, I'm resigning uh, because of my sin. And then they, they took my uh, ex, ex-wife. They wanted her to stand with me. And uh, they, you know, there's images seared into my brain uh, of her father helping her down the aisle because she was weeping uh, to stand next to me. Uh, in my moment of sin. And, uh, and the Pastor Palmer said, if you forgive Dave, I want you to stand up. And the entire church stood up. Hmm. And I just was, I didn't know what to feel. I felt incredible gratitude and love, but I also felt so lost and, and, and confused and didn't know where to go. So within a couple days, uh, in fact, the next day, um, before I actually spoke to the church at all, the, the day after they told me I needed to resign, my friend calls me and says, Dave, I've got a job for you. Cool. Uh, my friend Chuck, he uh, was a children's pastor part-time downtown Des Moines, and he said, I, I, it's not going to pay much, but I can get you a job mm-hmm. um, remodeling houses, flipping houses. It's, that's what I do for my full-time job. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just put you on my crew. So I started working the next week. Mm-hmm. Or like a couple days later, started delivering papers in the morning, getting up at about 4.30 every morning. Did that for about three years, mm-hmm. two and a half years. And then the day before so my... It was yeah, during those few years where you're, you're flipping houses, delivering papers, and you're going through all this counseling. Yeah. And so you did experience some healing during that time. Oh, huge amounts. Uh, my friend Mike was my accountability partner. God showed up in so many ways. They sent us to uh, a seminar. Uh, there was this seminar happening about pornographic addiction in um, Grand uh, Grand Island, Nebraska, I think it was, which so my wife and I went out there. Turns out it wasn't a conference for people struggling with it. It was to pastors to help people struggling with it. Oh. So I was the only one there openly admitted admitting I have this issue. I'm sure you weren't the only one there with the issue. Of course not, but I was <laughs> the only one saying this is why right. I'm here. Right. So you talk in the the breaks and they're like, why are you here? Well, because I just resigned because I have an addiction to pornography. Oh, we're here how to learn that. how to help people like you. <laughs> the day before my health insurance ran out, the the week that it ran out from the church, they gave me three months. I got a job at Principal Financial Group and the health insurance started first day of start. Awesome. So it ran out of church on Friday. Monday, I started at Principal, had full health insurance. That's great. So we had tons of counseling, tons of support tons of help and we survived it our our marriage survived mm-hmm. and uh we we lived in iowa for another four years after i resigned and for the at least two and a half years we went to the same church every sunday and then slowly got back involved again but then what happened well we uh we felt like I should go back in ministry. My friend Mike had given me a bunch of opportunities to uh, minister in the youth youth group, which I found out I really liked. Uh, liked working with teenagers, and we decided that we wanted to move away from Iowa and get go back in the ministry. When was it that your wife told you that if you lost your job again, she would divorce you? That was uh, as we were really getting having interviews over the phone with people. Mm-hmm. She said, "Yeah, if you uh, if if you if you screw up again, I'm done. I'm out. I'm not. I'm not doing this again. I will divorce you." So you had that hanging over your head. And yeah, it's understandable. You and I have talked a lot about this, but I felt at the time, and even now, to some extent, there's a logic to that, but it's also very. Is kind of like the sword hanging over your head, of course. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a ton of pressure, but we decided to go back into ministry. And uh, we got our, our resume out there, and there was a small church in the Flint, Michigan area 
that uh, I was very, very told them exactly what was going on and what happened and why I resigned. And uh, they they came out to the church and uh, they talked to people and we went out there and they decided to hire us. So in uh, 2005 in June, I moved my family from Des Moines, Iowa to the Flint, Michigan area. And I became a children's and youth pastor. And how long did it take before you started having struggles again? I'd been there about six months, and I started thinking I'd made a mistake. Mm -hmm. That ministry was not a good place for me. Um, After having spent 11 years in a warehouse and being, I felt like I had almost been institutionalized, like Shawshank Redemption. Um, Like when, um, I don't know the guy's character, but he goes to the... uh, Gets to Morgan Freeman's character goes to the grocery store, and uh, and he's like, "Can I take a no, can I red? Go? Red, yeah." He's like, yeah. "Can I go? Can I? Can I go use the bathroom?" And they're like, "You don't have to ask to use the bathroom. <laughs> you can just go to the bathroom if you need to." And uh, I was so used to people telling me what to do, when to do it, how to do it—the accountability—that in that pastoral environment, I floundered because I never knew what to do. Mm-hmm. I got very little feedback if what I was doing was successful or not, or done well. So did you talk to somebody about that? I, I didn't really know to talk about someone with that. I just thought it was because I was deficient. Mm-hmm. There was something just wrong with me. So as I get back into the pastoral, and now I even have less oversight in the smaller church, I feel like I'm lost. I feel sure. like a ship out in the ocean with no oars or motor. I'm just like, I, I'm trying to do things, but I don't. Is less it good? accountability. So with no accountability very little guidance, very little affirming feedback sort of feeds into the things that lead to weakness that tempt a person to go back into a cycle of addiction. Yeah. Um, And of course, through this whole process, and I went through a a fantastic ministry in Iowa um, called Christ Life Solutions, or it's now called the, uh, um, the Ultimate Journey, which it was extremely helpful. But I kept looking for something that was just going to ultimately fix me and right. make this go away. And, I, and I've learned that it's, it's become something that as I journey along with my life, I continue to try to continue to have more and more success with. But it was about, to answer your question, six months in, I realized I don't know that I'm a good fit at this church um, with these people in this environment. Good people. Um, well-meaning, God-loving people. It was about... Nine, ten months in, I looked at porn on my computer mm-hmm. in my office, and I told my wife right away, I told the senior pastor right away, hey, I screwed up today. And he's like, hey, no worries, man. We're about freedom in this church. That's not who you are. We get, All right, man. Don't worry about it. Um, Don't worry about it. Yeah, it's all good. It's all good. It's not you. That's not who you are. Your identity is in Christ. A couple weeks later, about a month hmm. later, I screwed up again honest right away didn't want to be i screwed up again today for about five minutes i looked at porn on my computer at work he's like oh okay well you know all right well you know it's not you know it's not good <laughs> i thought i know <laughs> um okay well all right you know just we gotta make sure we're on top of this okay don't do that anymore don't do that anymore um a couple weeks later third time look at porn on my computer for a few minutes and he's like, I told him, told my wife, he's like, okay, all right, I got to really think about this and pray about it. We used to have lunch at Subway um, once every couple weeks, and we had lunch a couple days later, and he said, Dave, you are a man of no integrity. Ouch. Yeah, I, I, that's one of the worst things anyone's ever said to me in my life. I remember... Th- we had youth group, and I remember him after youth group. I led youth group. I remember seeing him talking to some elders, and I'm like, I'm in big trouble. I came into work the next day, and he said, Dave, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, oh, crap. I sat down, and he said, you need to resign. If you don't resign, we'll fire you. Deja vu all mm-hmm. over again. And uh, I'm like, no, you can't. I mean, like, I, I didn't really beg or struggle. I'm like, all right. And they just dismissed me quietly. Um, they sent a note out to the members saying, you know, that, you know, due to some personal issues, you know, Pastor oh, Dave has so resigned. You didn't have to own it. Nope, didn't have to own it. Um, I just kind of slunk out the back door. 
And I will never forget telling my wife the second time I lost my job today. And my, I remember telling my, my eldest son who was, this was about 10 years ago. So he was, he was 16 mm-hmm. and I had to tell him. And then my 14 year old daughter and my kids, that's hard. That is, that's tough. We did not stay at that church. We left almost immediately right. and um, really just kind of let go. What do you mean you let go? Well, it was, in, so of course I'll qualify it by saying that I put them in a very horrible, awkward position and it was a very difficult thing for a small church to know how to handle it correctly. Um, and so rather than people kind of coming around me and surrounding me, they didn't really know what had happened. So when we left, they just kind of let us go with very, very few people trying to contact us or reach out to us mainly because they didn't really know what happened. So we so kind of slunk, happened? we kind of slunk away and. We stayed in the Flint area for a few more years. And and you stayed together. We stayed together for two years after I resigned. And then uh, came the fateful day in March of 2009. Uh, we weren't doing well, my wife and I. And uh, she went back to Grand Rapids to talk to her sister. And uh, I remember saying, you know, you're not, you're not going to divorce me, are you? And she said, you're always so dramatic. Why are you always so dramatic? You know, and just I just need to go talk to her and figure this out. Um, she came home after a day and a half. It's a Friday night. We went for a walk, and she said, "I don't, I don't want to be married to you anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm done. I'm done being married to you. Um, I, I don't want. I, I shouldn't have to put up with this anymore." She took some time off to think about it, and that was this was in March or April. She decided she wanted the divorce, so she said. She wanted to think about it for after it was out. She wanted a good six months to really think about it. And then in September of uh, 2009, she said, yeah, I'm, I'm filing. And, uh, and we're divorced. And that is where we leave the conversation. And honestly, it got a little bit of emotional for, um, for the two of them. And so we decided that we would just leave the podcast where it is right there and create a part two because there was so much more to discuss than just what had been discussed. In the next episode, it gets a little bit more deeper. We will talk to Carol and get more from Dave and talk about how you can get help if you are in this situation where either you are dealing with pornography. So definitely listen to that next podcast and get that information and listen part two of the story and we thank you for listening if you'd like to get in touch with us you can do so by reaching out to us with our email address an open letter to you that's an open letter the number two and the letter you at gmail.com and you can like our facebook page too just search an open letter you'll see a nice cool blue logo and that is us and like the page too on our facebook page that's where you can get information for our new episodes as they are released We are on both SoundCloud and iTunes. And if you get onto iTunes, you can actually write a review for us and let us know what you think there too. So thank you very much for listening. This is Chad, the producer, and stay tuned for part two of Dave's story.